Welcome to the Recovery Stories Podcast, bringing you stories of hope, healing, and triumph over the bondage of addictions, mental health struggles, trauma, and dysfunctional family systems. Our courageous storytellers have chosen to live their journey out loud in order to show others that they don't have to suffer in silence. The stories you will hear are raw, real, and may involve graphic and triggering content. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or are ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 888-648-4098. Or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of Rooted Recovery Stories. My name is Patrick Custer, and I'm so glad that each and every one of you have joined us, whether you are watching or listening live or on replay. We're glad you're here. And I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Uh, From starring in Baywatch and multiple reality shows to the fashion world of endorsement and show hosting, making his own music and touring the country, and now most importantly, being an advocate and person in long-term recovery. Our guest today has just about done it all. And we're so excited to have him on the show to share his life's journey. Jeremy Jackson, welcome. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Patrick, thanks so much. It's a pleasure. I I respect what you do. And uh, I'm just glad to be on the show today, man. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Well, so for for everyone, uh, life is so full of ups and downs. But for many of us, those struggles come in the form of mental health issues, trauma and addictions, which bring about unimaginable heartbreak and consequences and force us into the miracle of desperation. So that's one of my favorite parts of what we do on the show is getting to talk about those things and kind of uh, break stigma and elevate that voice. Um, so let's dive right in and talk about it and what got you there. Um, so first, one of my, I think, most important questions that I like to ask is, um, why have you chosen to be open and live your recovery story out loud? Well, gosh, you know, for all the mistakes I've made, you know, all the, all the blindness I've been a victim to, you know, all the successes that I've taken for granted, all the opportunities I've passed up on, stepped on, um, all the family members that I've hurt, you know, all the relationships that I've just, you know, poo-pooed on it's like there is absolutely no other way than to turn any of those negatives into a positive and to hopefully help other people not have to make the mistake not have to go same lengths and depths of of desperation that's about it that's awesome i I couldn't think of a better answer um so all the heartache (laughs) Yeah. Um, all right. So, you know, let's begin where where most stories all begin. Where were you born? I was born in Anaheim, California. Uh, you know, a little city in, in, in Orange County. Okay, cool. Um, so what was your what was your family life like and the dynamics that you were born into? Well, I had a, a single mom. Uh, my, my 
mother and father uh, were high school sweethearts. And my mom grew up in a very strict, uh, oppressive religious household. Um, extremely, you know, extremely strict. And uh, my mother fell in love with my dad in, in high school and he was the bad boy and the rock and roller. And, um, you know, he had a drug problem and she really didn't know much about that life. You know, mm -hmm. she had a very small um, kind of narrow perspective upbringing. So, uh, you know, when she found out about his drug addiction, she kind of just took me and kind of had to raise me all on her own. So, you know, single mom on, we were on, you know, food stamps, housing, uh, with, with, uh, you know, people coming to the house to make sure we were still broke and, and going in line for free cheese and rice at the church and that kind of stuff. Um, and it was kind of just me and my mom against the world from a very early age. Wow. So, wow. You know, from scholastic achievement, social performance, making friends to playing the part expected of us um, from our families, which is not always so healthy. Uh, being a kid is just hard, period, right? Um, so much is asked of us uh, to learn and adjust to within certain societal expectations. So I can't imagine with what you just shared um, how, how that just exacerbated your childhood experience. Um, were, yeah. you know, are there any areas that, um, you know, as far as school or making, being able to make friends and maintain relationships that were specifically, uh, difficult for you? Oh man. Um, you know, nobody really has it easy. You know, everybody has their obstacles and strengths and weaknesses, yeah. but you know, to, to add to, you know, being fatherless and, and, you know, really all I ever wanted was a dad and waiting for him to come home and not knowing anything about him and all that kind of stuff. I was uh, diagnosed uh, GLD, gifted learning disabled. Mm. So I had uh, ADHD. I was very hyper. I was dyslexic. So I wrote everything completely backwards. You'd have to hold what I wrote in a mirror to read it. Wow inside of the book to outside of the book. Um, and socially, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, like hygiene, outfit together, you know, interacting with adults. I was, I, my vocabulary was very high, but I was um, really held back in other areas. Math, words moved around on paper for me. It was really hard for me to read. I was hyper. Um, so all I ever wanted to do from an early age was, uh, was perform. You know, I loved dancing. I loved singing. I loved creating um, art. So, you know, most of the time I was locked up in the room and I had a little tape recorder and I would make little shows and radio shows and interview myself as somebody else. And I <laughs> pause and then I had a, it was a karaoke machine. So I'd play a song and, and record on the other one. I pop, you know, and I do this whole, these whole radio shows with music. That's awesome. So that kind of stuff stimulated me. I loved that. Um, but school really didn't. I think I had the, the record for going to the principal's office. I had teachers that would drive me home 
because my mom wouldn't answer the phone when they wanted to get rid of me. Uh, it, I was pretty tortured and tormented. Didn't get along with, I wasn't good at sports. I would run the wrong way with the ball and score in the wrong goal. It was, uh, a lot of, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, like pain, pain yeah. that, um, you know, would come out as, as anger. Cause I really didn't feel like I fit in, um, really anywhere, you know? Yeah. Wow. Um, so do you still have any of those tapes that, uh, you made your radio shows? My mom, it's funny. My mom uh, just moved to Florida after living her whole life in Orange County. And we had to go through all her stuff and mm -hmm. it out and pare it down. And we, I don't know. I, we put some tapes in a big bin, uh, but nobody had a tape player to listen to them. So there might be somewhere. <laughs> nice. Like nice. Um, well, that's, I mean, you know, leads up to my next question. That's, that's, that's a pretty fun memory from, from childhood, I'd say. Um, so what are some of the happiest memories that come to mind when you reflect on your childhood? Happiest memories. Um, you know, surfing was a, was a big deal for me. Um, you know, me and my mom, we moved to Newport beach when I was about six years old. And, uh, you know, riding my skateboard, going down to the beach, swimming. Uh, remember those ice tickles, those really big, like, otter pops? They were, like, this big. Yeah, yeah. You know, getting those things, just um, that kind of stuff. Me and my mom were really, really close. So uh, just times with mom at the beach and moving to beautiful Newport Beach when I was about six. That's awesome. I haven't thought about those those ice pops probably since I was a kid. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it made your throat all scratchy. Yeah, yeah, man, that's the truth. So, were you, did you say were you the only child? Uh, I have one sister. She's four years younger than me. Oh, okay, okay. Or six, um, six she what? Six years younger than me. Okay. So, um, you know, my next question, you've already kind of answered, um, you know, as far as your father was concerned, but, you know, were there other family members or friends who struggled with mental health or substance use disorders that you were exposed to, um, you know, in your early years that impacted, that really impacted you? Well, um, you know, my, my family's interesting. Um, you know, yes, my dad, uh, I, I found out when I was 26 that it, my, my dad, uh, who I had never met or really hung out with or got to know died of a, of a drug overdose that, uh, potentially, uh, was a murder. There's this whole, uh, conspiracy involved with wow. you know, going to that. That's a whole nother story. But, um, my dad's dad, who I never knew, um, actually decapitated himself in a fit of road rage. He drove his car uh, underneath a big rig truck and decapitated himself. Um, so there's wow. that. Historically, there's, you know, rage, you know, addiction. Um, my mom has pretty, pretty severe social uh, generalized anxiety. Um, you know, my, my, grandma and grandpa on my mom's side. I'm close with my grandma, my grandpa, I never really met, but you know, th there's gotta be something that plays into that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the of, uh, of 
being so uh, critical and firm and regimented with religion that that is is mentally unhealthy. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's a line between you know spirituality and love and and like this gnarly judgmental rigidity. Yeah, yeah. You no, know, no skirts below the knee. That's you know, if you ask me, that's that's not mentally healthy. Yep. Um, there's a lot of that stuff. You know, a, a, a lot of uh, dysfunction in my upbringing and my life. Yeah. yeah. I like to ask that question because, uh, you know, we have our, our audience is full of people from all different walks of life that are either struggling, you know, with different things or they've got loved ones that are struggling. Um, and I just, I think it's so important that we, you know, continue to talk about how, you know, family systems are real and alive. Like it's never, it's never <laughs> the, the one person in isolation that's, I, that's struggling. Yeah, my, my sister's been 5150'd, you know, um, my my sister's boyfriend was raised in Pennsylvania in a cult where he, he had to, he wasn't allowed to wear glasses because that was, uh, if he couldn't see straight, it was because, you know, he had to earn some kind of favor with God, you know, wow. and had feelings with no Novocaine, no doctors allowed, uh, siblings dying, but, you know, his brothers and sisters having babies, multiple babies that got like really gnarly stuff. Um, so yeah, we're kind of a, we're kind of a whole clan of, yeah. of who are, are, we stay sane and we, 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 you know, we help each other together, but everybody has a pretty bumpy road in, in, in their rear view mirror, I guess you could say. Yep. And I, it's it's one of the things that I love so much about, again, you know, interviewing people, talking, talking about each other's stories and, and what have you. It's perpetuated so much in our culture, this image of perpe perfection. Um, but, you know, in reality, true, true connection uh, it, among humans really happens um, through our blemishes, you know, through our errors, through our, the the uniqueness of the colors of our life, and um, so, uh, you know, just all the things you just said make make me that much more interested in your life right now, you know. And so, um, I think it's I think it's awesome, um, especially when we talk about you know how it leads, uh, you know, some of these things are really hard and and difficult to talk about and live, but um, you know, on the other side there's uh not always but so much of the time there's you know hope and um you know a life well lived uh you know one thing I've learned, yeah there 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 is always a solution mm -hmm. there's always a way out and you know it can feel like it's impossible you know it can feel like there's no way it, can, it feels like nobody else understands nobody else would get it and you know if we if we if we feel that way it's just because we we haven't found the way out yet yeah. you know haven't had that that connection yet um and we'll probably get into this later but but how i've found you know uh, a way yeah. Through uh, letting go of, of self-will. Yeah, absolutely. We will definitely dive into that. Um, so I do want to know, though, when you were a kid, um, do you remember, was there a time where you realized or, or you know, had this conscious decision 
I'm different from the other kids. And I know you already talked about your differences and that that was it, that was the case. But, um, you know, when was the point that that switch flipped and, and you started to um, conceptualize that? You know, that's a it's a really good question. It's very interesting, I think. Um, much of my life, even to date, I'm, I'm actually trying to get back to how I used to operate, you know, it, it, from a young age, very innately, very, you know, instinctually, you know, empathically, energetically, you know, I just knew. Mm. And, and I remember being crippled with pain, weeping, just knowing that life was not going to be easy, that something was different and or wrong with me. From a very early age, I can remember looking at people from the, on the exterior and knowing that on my interior, mm -hmm. that that's that's something was not working, you know? Yeah. Uh, I didn't feel on the inside how it seemed to me that people operated on the outside. Where do they find this motivation? Where do they find this sense of, uh, you know, desire to run around and do this and do that and operate? I just want to cry in bed, yeah. you know? So uh, from a very early age, I, I definitely, I knew that, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I'm not a, um, uh, uh, I don't give up easy. You know, mm -hmm. I'm stubborn. I'm committed. It's not like I just threw in the towel. It's like I, this overwhelming sense of impending doom, yet this desire to try and continue to try and try this and try that and be nicer or be meaner or make money or get famous or do drugs or it's like a mom, I'm, I'm going to figure it out one day, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, when you, I, you know, I, you, you kind of shared about how you had this, this creativity streak as a kid, um, and really enjoyed it. What, what was it? Do you remember the time where you felt the sense of knowing what you wanted to do when you grew up or did you just know <laughs> that you wanted to be creative in some way? But, yeah. Well, <sighs> Uh, it was it was watching funny enough um michael jackson elvis presley and knight rider it's like i saw these men you know these men who could do extraordinary things mm -hmm. who had extraordinary character who had a, a a power it seemed that normal men didn't have they were the pinnacle of of success and of influence and of having their, having it made, you know, blessed, gifted. Yeah. Um, and I knew, I knew I could do that. I was like, I can do that. I just knew I could do that. I envisioned that. I saw that happening. I practiced, rehearsed. I mean, I spent hours, you know, hours and hours honing my craft not knowing it was a business, not knowing that there was an managers or agents or auditions. I didn't know how the, it worked. I just knew that I wanted to possess that thing. Yeah. Um, 
and I started in like a little CEO, like a little boss, you know, I'm at a year old, you know, a year old, I, I was already rehearsing my spin moves, you know, two, three, four, just full-time job. Wow. Okay. So when did, when did acting enter the picture for you and how'd that come to be? Six at six years old. So single mom, I'm, I'm in daycare, you know, having a hard time in school. I'm advanced in other areas and, and slow in other areas and not really fitting in. So my mom's going to community college in Orange County, no connection to the entertainment industry, no family members who had been successful. I mean, we're not even in Hollywood, you know, this is not like a thing everybody does in our town. Um, and, uh, she saw on a bulletin board at school, um, you know, child actors wanted, and I was always a ham getting up on tables. I was getting her friends. <laughs> You know, I'd be a ballerina one minute and do a whole performance to Mozart. And then I do Michael Jackson and please watch me, please, you know, introduce me. You know, it's real specific. I'd be like, mom, okay, you have to say introducing Jeremy <laughs> like this. And I get all mad if she didn't do it right. Man, um, I did it wrong at the beginning of the show. I got to, I, I need to start. <laughs> we got to start over. I got to do it differently. <laughs> yeah, totally obsessed. Um, so she was like, okay. And she just sent, I remember her taking the pictures. She just took some pictures in our little apartment and mailed them off to this mm -hmm. age. Went up and met with this agent. I was real charismatic, boisterous. I had no clue. I was a child. I thought I was a grown up. I was ready to throw me in the, throw me in the shark tank. I'm ready to roll. And it was obvious to the agent. Um, and that agent was actually, uh, we didn't know about her or anything. It was just a shot in the dark. And she was the agent for the Olsen twins. She was the agent for a bunch of kids on Saved by the Bell. You know, she she represented all the big child actors at that time. Very so cool. it was just off to the races, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, what was the point where you quote unquote made it? Would you say that that was your when you landed um, Baywatch or Bay did you do something before that? I did. I did over 60 commercials before wow. Baywatch. Six and 10, I had done 60 commercials. And, you know, so from very early, like, you know, here I am six years old. We just started acting. My first gig was Mattel Color Racers, the cars that change color in water. So on summer break, in between every cartoon is me, the kid in Orange County that you go to school with. So as soon as I went back for third grade, you know, um, it's like, what, you know, like, and then I'm getting my, I'm getting beat up. I'm getting made fun of. I'm getting, you know, the so girls it wasn't, like, it wasn't like, positive hey, attention you got from that. No, no, no. Ostracized me even more, isolated me even more. Wow. Cause I can't read and you know, the, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm already, so now I'm, um, you know, there's, it's just, you know, when, when any, we sacrifice the virgin, anybody that's at the top, you, you put Jesus on the cross, you know, anybody, yeah. the higher, the further you have to fall. So especially man, really you talked about that, you know, kids are, are gnarly, man. Yes. Yeah. It's a great point. So, um, leading man, man, next question, how did you handle, and this is kind of more towards, uh, you know, like when you got, 
when you got Baywatch, what was that like? What what happened? What led to it? Um, and kind of a follow up to that is how did you handle work, school, life balance at that point? Because I'm sure it went from doing commercials, which is, you know, like one gig, you're done, one gig, you're done. And to you've got a you're, you've got a regular job you're working, right? Right. Well, um, I auditioned for Baywatch when I was nine years old. By the time we started filming, I was 10. Uh, I'll never forget the day. You know, there was like four auditions. I got to meet Knight Rider, my, one of my idols. It was super cool. Um, you know, we didn't know it was a international hit TV show. It was just, it was just another job. Maybe it's gonna go good. Maybe it's gonna go bad. Um, and you know, most most entertainment industry productions are, you know really hurry up and wait, really feast or famine, uh, high stress, you know, shoestring budget, you know, just make it work. So, you know, the first, the first season was just kind of putting time in, um, and, you know, shot, shot in the dark, throw the layup up, see what happens. Um, but it was fun. I mean, it was on the beach. It was what I love to do. It was surfboards and, you know, cool. I got to pick my clothes and, you know, ba basically be me, which was a single kid from the beach. So uh, it was just it was very fun for me. Um, and, you know, it was during the summertime. So it was all summer. There was no school. But, you know, uh, obviously I had school teachers, uh, mm -hmm. school uh, tutors and stuff. And I had always had a really hard time with school. So I spent most of my time getting out of go having to do any work um yeah I learned to leverage my power from a very early age um because i was needed you know and the yep. paycheck was mine and you know so I, I learned to throw fits and get out of doing school work uh but luckily i had uh, uh, cool tutors and interesting life experiential more experiential uh, education because the scholastic thing I, I hated, I dreaded. I mean, I still dread it. And I still, anything that feels like homework, I hate. I can relate to that. I was homeschooled my whole life. Um, and uh, sometimes I wish I had gotten the opportunity to go to school, but I, I feel like it was what I needed because the type of learner I was. Um, yeah, so I kind of, I, I can relate to what you're talking about on, on that end of things. Well, um, all the answers are in the back of the book. Well, that's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's true. So <clears throat> looking back, do you remember, uh, did your perspective of reality shift, um, from that of your peers at the same age as you? Um, and if so, when was that? You know, it, there's definitely a shift. Um, definitely a shift. Um, however, it's not the shift I think most people would assume. Mm. Uh, it, it is, however, the shift most people treated me like. Um, but, you know, I, I am a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm this fatherless child who just wants approval, who just wants friends, who just wants to be loved, who will give you the last dollar in my pocket, give you the shirt off my back. So if anything, the shift happened by me trying harder, working harder, um, 
giving deeper in order to be accepted as just mm. one of the boys, just, uh, you know, another kid on the baseball field craving, craving connection and uh, authenticity. Um, however, most people assumed, you know, that I had an ego or that I, I acted the way I acted or said what I was saying due to my, you know, self supported, like uh, 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 superiority complex, but it was sure. just genuinely who I was, you know what I mean? So yeah. it was a very disruptive dynamic of yeah. trying uh, you know, uh, uh, uh. it's really interesting because, you know, we look at so many uh, and I'm sure you've had this conversation with so many people uh, that, you know, because you look at the psyche of uh, people who find fame at a young age. And typically that is what we see, uh, you know, and um, so, you know, that may have been one of the things that kept you from uh, I mean, clearly you had some stumbling blocks that came on later, but um I mean, I can tell now that you are such a kind and gentle person. Like one of the things that protected you from, um, I mean, like further screwing up your life. Who knows? You know, that your difficulties, you know, kept kept your ego in check, um, you know, at least for a period of time. I don't know. Um, but well, I, I figured out later in life that I have uh, the dyslexia doesn't. Uh, it doesn't stop at writing backwards. I have like dyslexic ego. Like it's still, it's still self-centeredness, you mm. know, it's still, you know, my low opinion of myself or my higher opinion of others or my, uh, you know, the, the, the people pleasing and the, you know, feeling less than, or the, the, the needing of love and it's still self-centeredness, yeah. you know, just not the, you know, screw you pay me i'm better than you ego you know yeah very yeah, interesting makes sense so um talking about character defects uh you know let's talk about some of the the how how we kind of those manifest um outwardly when did substance use enter the picture well you know very early so I, I started um, when I was still in diapers, I started sticking um, foreign objects, bobby pins, tweezers, butter knives in electrical outlets. Um, and I tell people that, you know, my drinking and my using was not much different. You know, um, there was something I was told not to do that was dangerous to be cautious of. Um, I didn't believe my mom. I thought she was keeping something from me, some item of fun, some fact of, you know, enjoyment. Yeah. Um, and I got shocked. It hurt. I caused physical damage, you know, financial. And, uh, and I really upset people, you know? Um, but I thought maybe if I did it a different way, or if I did it on the top and not the bottom, or if I did it in one side and not the other, or if I used this or that, that I could get away with it. And every time it hurt me, it hurt other people, you know? Wow. Yeah. And uh, one day I stuck something in the dryer outlet and I 
blew myself across the room. And that was my bottom with electrical outlets. <laughs> wow. <You know? laughs> I almost killed myself. Dang. Um, so from a very early age, anything that I was told was naughty or wrong or to be cautious of. Yeah, I saw a big kid smoking cigarettes. So for first it was cigarettes. Well, I, I also used to mix household chemicals together, bleach, peroxide, rubbing alcohol, pine saw, anything I could get that was, I was told no, like, hey, don't, no, naughty, whatever. There's a lock on it or something. It's, I get a slap for going in there. I'm like, ah, these adults are keeping something from me because they don't want me to enjoy life. They want me to stay miserable like I am right now. Hmm. This must be this must 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 be some entryway into this other dimension of happiness that I am not experiencing currently. Let me do that. And so I'm pretty sure I discovered huffing like accidentally. Oh wow. I would lock myself in the bathroom, I'd put a towel under the door, and I'd make about 20 different formulas. You know, from emptying shampoo bottles to emptying, you know, and doing all the, I'd melt plastic, and I would get my butt whooped. You know, I'd get in trouble. I had this single mom, we're broke, you know, and right. I'm burning financial, uh, you know, security stuff, you know, stuff that keeps yeah. the house afloat, stuff that we need. So yeah. I get in trouble. You know, uh, I, I hurt. Same thing with the dryer outlet. You know, so I, I get hurt. I hurt my family life. I hurt my feelings and potentially endangering my my physical health. You know, and then it was like cigarettes. I was stealing cigarettes. I dipped cigarettes in nail polish remover because that's another thing I was told not to do to be careful. Right. Wait for them to dry and I'd smoke them to see if anything happened. Nobody ever taught me how to do drugs. Nobody ever told me these things would get me high, but I knew there had to be something outside of me I could do to, to, to change my experience, my interior experience. Mm -hmm. And eventually you find older kids and smoke some weed or whatever. I think I found weed when I was 10 or 12. Um, and, uh, you know, there's so many things that come with that, you know, then you get, you have a secret with a friend, you know, something, something special. You've, that you can feel a part of at least with somebody that you have a secret something you're doing nobody else can know about there's the excitement of stealing it out of the lady's ashtray in her car that smokes it you know and your apartment complex it's like ooh, right um and uh and then of course you get the head change from from smoking the weed so that's that's where it started when i was when i was about 12 but i was searching high and low far before that hmm Interesting. So did, uh, so was, was your initial substance use at all connected to Hollywood acting like that, that nope. those people? No, definitely not. Cause I, by, you know, like I said, when I was probably three years old, I was mixing those household chemicals. Yeah. Yeah. So at 12, when you started to smoke weed, what was that? Like, what was <laughs> was that was that with uh the the your hollywood crowd your co-workers or whatever nope no i mean i sure wish i could blame it on hollywood you know i sure wish i could blame it on some bad uh influence but uh it was it was me all me and wow. I, if anything you know when i would show up to work yeah at 12 you know that's where i would pretend to be a, a, a good boy yeah. or a grown up and a professional 
Um, but as soon as people weren't paying attention or, or, uh, or had, uh, had, uh, you know, assumed there was nothing to worry about with me, that's when I'm going to do it. You know, the, the, the checks in the mail, the job's done. Right. All right. Let's go drink, you know, on the beach with, with friends, usually older friends. I gravitated towards o- older people and it was cool to have the kid from Baywatch around. Um, and, and wow, look how messed up he gets, you know, look how drunk he gets. Yeah. So when did it, when did it go from, uh, fun for you to, um, and like a casual experience to actually not being fun anymore and, and having consequences? Man, I, I don't think I ever got away with, uh, controlling and enjoying my drinking. I mean, for, uh, or using for that's, you know, I used to steal the, the weed out of this lady's ashtray. I think about a week in, I got arrested by the police um, because we snuck into this schoolyard snack shack to steal Snickers. Uh, and then we got arrested for trespassing. It was humiliating. I pooped my pants. The cops put their knee in my back. I was 12 and I crapped wow. my tied and carried, made fun of. So, you know, the, the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization was out the gate. You yeah. know, then, you know, right away, I would always, you know, want to drink more than anybody, show off. I ruined friends' birthday parties, um, trashed people's houses in blackouts probably at 14. Um, so I never was the guy that that pulled Moderation it was never, you never even started off with any moderation. Nope. 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 Um, and I think around probably, I think around 16, you know, I said just like 14, 15, 16, I'm doing keggers and we're smoking weed and it's no big deal, even though I'm doing it, you know, earlier and harder than anybody. Um, but I think about 16, somebody, I, somebody talked me into taking ecstasy or, you know, you know how we are. I, I didn't yeah. hear really what it was or I heard what I wanted to hear because I was always scared to do like hardcore drugs because i thought they'd kill me um because my mom told me i'd probably die um which she wasn't wrong but uh regardless i took ecstasy and then somebody told me dude you know what's in ecstasy there's like cocaine in ecstasy there's like crystal meth in ecstasy there's you know mdma you know i was like i can remember thinking oh it didn't kill me that means i can do it and not die so i ended up uh you know, pretty heavy into cocaine around 16 mm. from, from 16 to 18 was a lot of cocaine use. Um, you know, Baywatch was kind of at its height. I was old enough to go to clubs, buy my way into clubs. You know, I could get, you know, I'd go to 18 and over clubs or look older and still hang out with 21 year old girls at 16. I could pull this off. And I feel like even back then, you know, I'm 41 now. So back then it wasn't like, uh, it was kind of like the healthy person's drug. It was like you right. to the Playboy Mansion and you did some coke. It wasn't right. Well, like- also, it hadn't been that long since. I mean, what what decade was it that that they? I guess it was Nine. a few a few decades before that that they were putting cocaine in Coca Cola. But right, uh, right. you know, it wasn't. It was the rich man's drug. It was the distinguished gentleman's yeah. party favor. It was a party favor back then. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
how did uh, how did those consequences you know evolve over time from it sounds like you had your garden variety stuff that would happen kind of regularly that was that was you know normal for you but like as as it does right they escalated um and it, what did that look like you know i would i would work all summer and then when filming was over i would steal my checks and I would party all winter. And about a month or two before summer, I'd be real sucked up. I will have had picked my face really bad, potentially dyed my hair purple, lost a bunch of weight. You know, I looked like crap. I was pale. So I would go to rehab starting pretty early, you know, 14, mm. 15. I'd go to rehab. I'd straighten out and put a little weight back on, you know, come back home go to my nice barber, get some cool hair, cool clothes again, and go to work again. And so I did that for about four years. I had already been to five rehabs probably um, by the age of 18 or, or so. Um, so that was a pretty sick cycle, you know? Yeah. Um, Thanks for tuning in today to part one of Jeremy Jackson's story. We're so glad that each and every one of you have connected with us. And we hope that you will join us again next week for part two. Uh, just want to remind you, as always, that you are only one decision away from a completely different life. And it is never too late to start loving yourself. For more information on today's episode, check out the show notes. Recovery Stories is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 888-648-4098. Or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please share with your friends. Follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are grateful for you and hope that you have been encouraged by today's episode. As always, remember you are only one decision away from a completely different life, and it is never too late to start loving yourself. 